Hi, I'm Bert Broadhead, and welcome to Building Our Future, the podcast where we meet the people changing the way we design, construct, and utilize our built environment. It sometimes seems that every aspect of our lives is being affected by changes in technology. One of the areas that has seemed relatively isolated from this phenomenon is the construction industry, but all of that seems to be changing. Both the way we build things and who is doing the building is entering a period of potentially unprecedented change. Having spent this morning in Mark Farmer's high-tech Clark and Well offices, you really get a sense of the direction that he sees the industry moving in, and it's hard to argue with it. Digitization, technology, and innovation seem like they're here to stay in the construction world. It's a huge topic, and one that I will be exploring further in the future, but Mark is an excellent place to start in giving us an overview of both the challenges and opportunities facing the industry. I'm joined today by Mark Farmer, founding director and CEO of CAST, the real estate and construction consultancy specializing in delivery of complex residential-led projects and modern methods of construction. Mark's own focus is on promoting modernization within the construction industry through adoption of pre-manufacturing and more integrated and digitally enabled delivery models. Besides founding his own rapidly growing business, Mark also managed to find the time to write the October 2016 Government Review of the Construction Labour Market Model, entitled Modernize or Die. Mark, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining. Thank you, Per. Um, Modernize or Die, as a title, certainly doesn't pull any punches. Can you summarize for our listeners, what are the main threats facing the construction industry and why is now the real time that all these problems seem to be coming to a head? Um, Yeah, so it's pretty difficult to know where to begin on that one because there are so many issues that the construction industry is currently facing. And I think it's important to start from an understanding of what the industry is currently experiencing in terms of structural failure. And I do view it as structural failure. This is, you know, lots has been said about the construction industry in the past. You know, it's always uh, a very difficult industry. It's always something that's very volatile. It's highly cyclical. And I think there's a sort of presumption that that's just the way it is and it would always be that way. And what I've tried to do with my report and and sort of look at and analyse, if you were to roll this forward 10 years, what that might look like if we were to continue as business as usual, is quite alarming. And that's why the modernise or die strapline sits there. It's quite deliberate. It was trying to provoke people into thinking, you know, well, why is he saying that? Is this just the drama um, bit of rhetoric that that's beyond the, the reality, or is it is, is it fundamentally rooted in in something that's quite serious? And I, I think it's the latter. But you, you're coming from it from a perspective which I think is entirely right. That the way we build houses, in particular, is is broadly the same as it as it always has been. And I suppose the other key driver is what's going on with the with the workforce. So, what, what are your main concerns about the construction workforce in the UK? My Review was all about the UK construction labour model. So the issue of resources and skills and the workforce capacity was at the heart of everything I wrote about. We could end up, just to put this in context, in in a situation a decade or so where we've lost somewhere between one in four and one in five of the workers of the whole construction industry. And that is something that we haven't experienced before. We have cycles of activity in boom and bust where we gain workers, we shed workers, but we've always been able to replenish. And for Um, context, this is because, A, we have a relatively elderly workforce 
And B, we have a workforce which is highly dependent on EU migration. Is yeah, so, so there's three things going on, actually. One is, as you say, we have an ageing workforce. So we're projected to be lo- um, losing more people through retirement every year than we are in terms of gaining people. That links to a, a related issue around the image of our industry. We're struggling to get young talent in um, in the numbers we need to do the replenishment that, that's required around uh, the demographic bell wave and the, and the retirement that's going on. And that in turn links to the fact that we are building the same way that we have done for many hundreds of years. And, you know, it's very, very low tech. We also have a migrant dependency issue, as you've highlighted. We obviously are getting, we're going through Brexit at the moment. And what Article 50 doesn't or doesn't look like is slightly immaterial because we're already seeing the beginnings of uh, a tightening up in EU labour supply. We're not seeing the flows of labour that we have in the past. And what's more disturbing is we're starting to see perhaps the beginning of repatriation of labour. That's a particular issue for London. London's got a high level of dependency on on migrant labour, particularly EU um, uh, labour. If you add all of those things up, we've got some unprecedented drivers for change, which is why modernise or die, um, for me, is all about timing. So to say that message at a time when it didn't have so much going on behind it to sort of get people's attention, probably the, and what's added to that, I think there's two things more recently um, that, that have really added to um, fuel to the flames here. Um, and, you know, one is the whole issue around what's happened with Carillion. Yep. And Carillion is very much a die event rather than a modernised event. And that that's brought it home in some brutal reality to, to many people that actually, well, I'm not talking about the industry dying. I'm talking about businesses not being fit for purpose anymore yes. and failing. And that's what's happened with Carillion. You know, everyone would have thought they're too big to fail. They failed. It's highly likely they're not going to be the last big player that, that, that fails. And then the second um, uh, issue is the tragedy that happened last summer at Grenfell. And I think what you've got there is another reason to shine a light on our industry in perhaps a way it hasn't had before. And this all comes at an interesting time in another context, which is commercial aside, with a residential focus, there's ever-increasing pressure to deliver more homes, ironically, with a, with a smaller workforce. One of the um, sponsoring departments, government departments, my review was what was DCLG, which is at MHCLG now. So their particular interest in my findings was all linked to house building. So at the time my review was instigated, David Cameron was the Prime Minister. He had a manifesto commitment to a quarter of a million homes a year. That has since increased under Theresa May's government to 300,000 new homes a year. We are building circa 200,000 homes, give or take. So we have, you know, a big uplift in terms of needing to add 50% to our output to get anywhere near where the government targets are and put that in the context of what I've already said in terms of a declining workforce. It only leads to one imperative which is productivity we have to be able to build more with less people and that is all about how we use technology it's about how we use different techniques for building and moving towards more manufacturer-led thinking rather than just presuming it's always going to be the same way of building which is just highly labor intensive all based on site nothing pre-manufactured it's all you know it will be what it will be because that's the way it's always been and i'm trying to challenge that level of thinking because i'm I'm, my concern is we do not have a choice anymore if we're going to be fit for purpose as an industry one of the often quoted comebacks to that especially if you're speaking to the more traditional elements of a construction industry is that they're just providing what people want and that the customer doesn't want prefabricated housing modular housing whatever you may call it you're absolutely right. There are lots of objections out there from different parts uh, of the industry. I would say actually the mass public objection that's often quoted about prefab and concern about prefab buildings is overdone. My view is that public perception around how houses are built is not as sensitive as people think. Actually, some of it is just about the visual aspect. So if you build a prefabricated home and it looks prefabricated, yeah, you're going to have a problem. So what we should be looking to do is create 
beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, but pre-manufactured buildings. And if you can't do that, then actually that's the wrong type of prefabrication we're doing. We need to be creating high quality architecture. We need to be creating aesthetically pleasing developments that actually are agnostic to how they've been built. The physical, you know, bang on the, the wall or jump up and down on the floor, robustness test has to be passed as well. So if it feels flimsy and it feels temporary, you're not going to sell it or rent it. So there is a for me, the, 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 the challenge for the emerging offsite industry is actually within the industry, not outside the industry. It's not the public. It's actually blockers, whether it be designers, whether it be contractors, whether it be clients, development clients and house builders who don't believe in it. They're either cynical about it because they've done it in the past and it's a different type of offsite manufacturing. What I'm trying to open people's eyes to is there's a new wave of pre-manufacturing coming forward, which is digitally enabled. It's all about technology. It's about building in a different way. And to be quite frank, the comparison to traditional building being better than prefabricated is a complete false premise at the moment. Yeah, I think there's there's two points there. One, I think it's going to be a very quick turnaround before people start thinking in terms of prefab as actually being architecturally really interesting. Uh, and that the kind of horror stories of the 60s and 70s are quickly replaced by some of the innovative products which are already reaching the UK whether it's through or via Germany, uh, US, uh, and there's also some 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 great kind of UK brands, the likes of Enhouse, Top Hat, Urban Splash, all all doing their own thing. And then, like you say, in terms of build quality, I think you know the facts speak for themselves in terms of energy efficiency that prefab manufacturers are achieving versus traditional builds, and whether actually you know that becomes the selling point to the end user, the fact that their building will cost. X percentage less to run just due to its energy efficient properties. And I, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, there, there's a certain level of logic to if you build homes in a factory or you build more of homes in a factory, it doesn't have to be absolute. It's more, it's a proportional thing. So the more content that's delivered through manufacturing processes and controlled environments, as opposed to it all being put together in situ at a, on, on a cold, wet building site, it has to be a proxy for more control over the quality and the outcome that you're going to get. And I think that's subject to the right processes being applied, which is why I made the distinction between high quality pre-manufacturing, digitally enabled. I think digital is a key theme in all of this. And albeit my report doesn't talk extensively about it, it's implicit in everything I say that technology is the way forward, both in terms of how we design, but also how we, how we manufacture, how we assemble. There has to be a digital thread has to then extend into the building's performance after occupation. And what I see is, is is very much an industry at the moment where off-site manufacturers still at the fringes. It's dominated by traditional build. As we've increased output over the last five years, uh, every year we've increased output. Customer satisfaction has gone down, and that is a clear yep. correlation from NHBC, HBF ratings and, and the star rating system. So what we have is the manifestation of the skills problem that I spoke about earlier. We have a declining workforce, not only in terms of headcount, but the average skill level. And if you deploy people into house building and you're deploying insufficient skill sets, um, you're doing it in uncontrolled environments on site, you're going to have problems. And that is what we're seeing. And the occurrence of those problems is increasing the more you try and overload the industry with a, a, a constrained capacity, which is the problem we currently have. I think that makes sense, especially when when you think you know house building is a is a complex process. It's ultimately about volume for the majority of builders out outside of London. And if you're building a site of you know 100 houses, you've got an awful lot of subcontractors on site building whatever it is, walls, roofs, and ensuring quality and standardization across all of that in a traditional method is 
challenging at the best of times, even when you've got the, the very best oversight and contractors working on it. Going back to the labour model, it's quite interesting to note that a big proportion of our workforce is actually self-employed. So there's another issue about the mode of employment and many trade contractors and subcontractors who would be physically doing the work on sites being managed by either a house builder or a main contractor. They're no longer actually in control of that workforce that they're using. They use gangs who are mostly self-employed, are itinerant. They move from site to site. They'll be attracted by higher wages down the road if there's a site offering more money. Some of the sites are quite difficult from a construction perspective and won't be attractive so people working on bonus or price work will just pick the easiest job yep so some jobs are actually um uh, nothing's ever unbuildable but they become more expensive because people want to price up based on the fact it looks like a difficult job and that level of volatility around how you attract your workforce and how you make sure you have labor security when you're looking to build to certain scheduled targets and quality targets cost targets um is a massive problem and it's a problem not just for big organizations it goes all the way down the supply chain so you know we have some as i say some structural issues in our in, in our in our market that aren't going to go away where even if we can move to off-site manufacturing some of these are more deep-seated around tendency in labor to be self-employed rather than paye the unwillingness of businesses to put people on payroll and wanting to have be fleet of foot around their payroll and their overhead etc those issues aren't going to go away well, I'd like to come back to that a little bit later as to how the, the workforce adapts to the inevitable change in the in the industry. But just taking a few steps back, there may be a few people listening who are wondering what the hell we're talking about in terms of factory-built or pre-manufactured housing. What are we talking about? I use a term called pre-manufactured value in, in my report, or PMV. It's a very simple measure. It's a percentage, and it is the proportion of a construction project, whether it's a house, whether it's a school or a hospital, that actually is made up of components that are being put together before they arrive at site. Now, that could be a brick, it could be a window, it could be cement or sand as raw materials. They're all component-level materials. And as you move more towards putting stuff together in consolidated ways, so rather than building a brick wall on site with a brick layer and mortar, you actually build the brick wall as a panel in a factory. <laughs> what you're doing is increasing that pre-manufactured value. So what I'm really talking about around factory building and pre-manufacturing is a whole spectrum of different solutions that span from consolidated sub-assemblies, so bits of buildings that are just being put together off-site or near-site, um, and that could be a panelised wall, it could be a utility cupboard that's been pre-assembled, um, it could be a, a precast concrete um, structure rather than pouring the concrete on site and in situ. could be an entire module of a building, volumetric 3D module, which is what many people associate with prefabrication. They, they immediately think of a whole unit arriving on the back of a lorry and being craned into position. That's the most extreme type of pre-manufacturing, and there are some platforms that are doing that that are quite well known, but there's a whole range of stuff below that so that that's really what i'd mean by off-site manufacturing and as i say some of it is not necessarily in centralized remote factories you increasingly i think going to see more manufacturer-led thinking driven by having factories adjacent to the site flying factories they're called so you set up a temporary enclosure and you do things in a more controlled way adjacent right adjacent to the site as opposed to just doing stuff at the work face in an uncontrolled way do you think there's a bit of confusion amongst the public at the moment when we talk about prefab that it may be people are thinking 3D printers and that these factories are literally 
making houses as opposed to assembling them, which seems to be more where the industry is at at the moment. There's actually confusion even in the industry, construction industry and real estate industry about what prefab means. So, uh, you know, it, it does some of the people I meet who have a perception as to what prefab represents. There's a lot of presumption of, towards it being 3D. So when someone says prefab, they still equate it with perhaps a uh, prefabricated school classroom yep. sitting in someone's playground from when they were young and they they immediately default to that mental image. That's not healthy because actually it implies temporary building, it implies poor quality. As I say, we are in a world now where some of the emerging platforms coming forward, both from the UK domestically and some international examples, are a world away from that. And they're technology enabled, they're very high quality, but it is all about a range of solutions that, that are parts of buildings, 2D panelized systems where it's floors or walls or parts of structure to you know more the volumetric type pre-assembled pre-finished uh units that, that perhaps people are think associating from in the past but of a very different quality level to what people are, are thinking of from many years ago in terms of the advantages of this so it's, it's less labor intensive quality is higher what about speed of delivery and cost the key thing is here it has benefits on various fronts. So from a speed perspective, provided you're placing the order in due time, because obviously what you've got to bear in mind here, even though there's less work happening on the site, work has to happen off-site. So there is a overall duration. The reality is, though, if you order your development program and think about it in the right way and you're spending the right amount of time up front, and there is a different approach from a development perspective. So if you're running a real estate development process and actually you know, you're know you driven by a planning application, getting a planning consent for a site, you can't put off thinking about whether you're going to modularize your building until after you get a consent. You have to think about it before you put your planning application in because there's certain things you'll do around fixing parameters on dimensions and typology of the building that will have an impact on whether your building could be modularized in any shape or form. So it brings forward some of the thinking. If you do it early enough, you know the, the, it varies, but broadly you can save anything up to 30-40% of the overall development program. So it's significant around time. Cost-wise, this is, you know, there's lots of people that talk about, well, what it's going to cost more money. The honest answer to that, to that is invariably it will if you don't have scale sitting behind it. And the one big variable with off pre-manufacturing and off-site manufacturing is completely diametrically opposed to, to traditional build. So in the traditional construction world, the more you build, the more expensive it gets um, and the poorer the quality. What you've got with off-site manufacturing is the more you build, the cheaper it will get because your fixed costs are being diluted more and more by volume and you will have a consistent quality and actually it should be a higher quality. So actually if you do it right and you're, you're applying certain principles around scale, around maximising the opportunity, if you're experimenting with off-site manufacturing as a one-off sort of dipping your toes. Sometimes the commercial realities are that that's quite tough to make work and when you compare it to traditional. So it's really, the, you know, the big opportunities around growing the sector are about connecting manufacturing businesses and, and platforms with larger levels of demand. That ties in very well with my, my next thought or question is whether you think there may be a, a divergence between people who can afford the scale, who have current scale and the resources to, to invest in their prefab um, operations and the SME builders who probably don't have those kind of resources but are on the other hand the supposed recipients of of the most government support at the moment and they're they're kind of seen as part of the answer for delivering more more housing numbers. Yeah so I you know SMEs are a massively important part of our industry we have a very very large SME tail 
So of the two and a half million workers, by and large, most of them are SMEs. So, you know, we have a uh, massive fragmentation. I think we have somewhere in the order of 250,000, 300,000 businesses in our sector. So the average body count, if you like, within each business is is pretty low. So, uh, you know, that they, to, 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 to reflect on a strategy that's going to change our industry, um, you have to bring SMEs into that. So as soon as you start talking about manufacturing, you talk about factories, you talk about equipment, then everyone just assumes that's immediately uh, at variance with how you're going to engage SMEs. I don't believe that. I've seen clear examples where SMEs with progressive thinking are engaging with an off-site manufacturing-led agenda. They're doing it at a scale that works for them, that's not cost prohibitive. They're using technology as the bridge to get into this world in, in a way that works. I think, you know, the big sort of holy grail here, if we're going to open up manufacturing-led thinking across the board, is to move to more of what I term platform um, design. So it's what's used in automotive sets, so which is much more about open sourcing components and manufactured level components, such that um, SMEs, large businesses, whoever you might be, you can get them off the shelf. Meaning, if I want um, a bathroom, I can I can get a particular bathroom type from X number of suppliers. Are you talking more about uh, a brick or what's? So yeah, if you take the bathroom analogy, you can get at the moment you'll get sanitary wear, you'll get baths, wash hand basins, WC pans, you'll get taps you'll get lots of bits of, of of bathrooms what i see is in a world where you'll get pods right of bathrooms with a whole load of different combinations of how you put that pod together and the configuration that sits within it so it's all based on building blocks so the building blocks for a bathroom sure. will be the sanitary wear so but it's the positioning of how you put that together and then consolidate it put it into a 3d environment and know that actually you can go and get that at the press of a button from seven or eight different suppliers and put it into your building. Plug, moment, plug and play, yeah. and everyone's working off the same yeah. the same kind of Which is exactly the, the strategy that's adopted in other sectors, including aerospace and automotive, who use product platforms to create consistency and standardization where it's appropriate. In residential, for instance, which is where most of my work is, is done day to day, you see parts of buildings every day where architects and engineers are designing the thing from scratch over and over and over again, when in reality they should be using standardization yep. because there's no value being driven from that redesign. There's going to be other areas that absolutely have to be bespoke, particularly things like facades and the ability to dress a building, make it look right architecturally. But much of the chassis of a building has a great opportunity to be product platform based. So this slightly ties in with what you discussed earlier about um, the digital transformation of the sector. What you were talking about there is the idea of having 3D digital architectural plans, uh, which I suppose kind of then morph into what forms the BIM model. So you create a virtual twin of building that you're ultimately creating. What other kind of big digital themes do you think are going to transform into? So for me, the biggest untapped source of digital improvement in our industry is to step beyond the digital design model. So at the moment, we have things like Revit and all sorts of different software platforms that enable you to design in 3D. As you've just said, we are increasingly moving to a world where consultants and designers are integrated and collaborating on models where they can clash detect, they can coordinate, so they're creating a digital twin yep. before they go to site. But what then happens at the moment, by and large, is it becomes an analogue construction process. The digital thread stops at the point people start putting stuff together on site. For me, that's my biggest bugbear with the whole BIM agenda and everyone pushing BIM without thinking about the whole process being a digital thread from start to finish. And as soon as you start thinking about digital technologies and using BIM and then apply it through the lens of 
know, traditional procurement uh, mechanisms and traditional construction techniques, it becomes irrelevant. And you're just building, people are building off drawings on site. They might be building off an iPad, but it's still 2D. It's not 3D. Where I see the biggest potential, and I'm, there's some really interesting innovation happening as we speak in this area, is what I call augmented worker um, strategy, which is augmentation of construction workers on site, where traditional tradesmen or assembly teams who are um, responsible for completing buildings have digital models presented in front of them in real time oh, through right, augmented yeah. reality. So AR is a big, big latent part of this puzzle, and it has to be linked to digital fabrication as well. So don't if you're uh, if you're a bricklayer, for example, you're wearing VR goggles and seeing the digital twin of the of a building in front of you, so you can see exactly where you, the brick you're meant to be laying. Yeah, is, it's probably know. not the brick laying quite, analogy quite is not the best one, but actually, more it would be better if if the analogy was if you were an assembly team putting a brick panel in place, right. you'd know exactly how that panel got put together and where it should go, yep. and it would be visualised in front of you in your field of vision, and that is. Um, something that's happening as we speak. There's a lot of um, uh, work being done in academia and with industry being part of that as well in that field. I also see productivity and site um, workforce management, digital-led being an increasingly part of the picture. So um, the, the supervision of workers on site can be a lot more tied down in terms of locational positioning of workers, understanding patterns around poor productivity because people are taking too long to get to the work phase, whether people are not, doing what they should be doing, whether there's health and safety infringements, uh, all of those are going to become increasingly digitalized. So I think the bit, coming back to the bit that's missing, so you've got front-end design, which is great, lots of improvement over the last few years. You actually have back-end opportunity around the asset inventory being held on a model as well. So if you're retaining the asset, you have a digital twin, you can manage the building against. Yep. It's that bit in the middle that we're still struggling with that is why I'm so interested in, di- in off-site manufacturing and pre-manufacturing because I see digital fabrication taking risk out of the on-site delivery and making the physical uh, assembly on-site absolutely uh, enable for a digital thread as opposed to it becoming overly analogue. We're always going to have elements of analogue in, in our construction industry. We're not building cars. We're building yep. assets in places, in real places that have to have foundations and drainage put in. And that's the reality of what we do. But we can change it so so much that we, and we, we think we can't, and that frustrates me. Who builds the, the prefab houses? Can you retrain the existing workforce? And secondly, if not, what happens to the existing workforce? There's obviously a wider debate going on at the moment beyond the construction industry about the future of work. So, you know, there's lots of debate going on about the impact of technology on employment levels and particularly artificial intelligence, which is probably the one thing that has potentially the biggest impact, um, and particularly in professional services and some, some of the areas that human expertise could be massively impacted by. But what I see, certainly around pre-manufacturing, is a great opportunity to not take people's jobs, but to augment the capacity of the industry. So mm-hmm. actually, people that are doing traditional artisan skills, if they're bricklayers or stonemasons or carpenters, will always be needed. We have a massive existing building stock in this country. New build construction is only part of what we do. So actually, we have existing stock that needs people to do things in a very manual way. And that will always be the case. And we'll always have a very traditional element to our new build. What we're talking about is building capacity by either so those that are in existing um, traditional jobs have the opportunity to reskill. You then have these new skills, which are more about manufacturing. They're more about logistics. They're more about assembly. They're about digital engineering. And that you know is an opportunity not just for existing workers in the industry, but for actually getting on top of this attraction issue we have. We are not bringing enough young talent in because they see the industry as being backward. They Mm -hmm. see it 
as being all about working on a cold, wet building site, hard hat, high vis, trowel in hand. That stereotypical image is not going away as quick as it needs to. We need, can only transform that by changing the physical narrative of what it is we do. And that's moving small stuff into quasi manufacturing environments where the working conditions are better, the health and safety issue, um, risks are reduced. Um, and people enjoying what they're doing because they're, they're using technology, in, in a, and that's what kids want to do now. The need for change seems pretty obvious to me, both in terms of the attractions of what change can bring, but also the push factors of the problems faced by the industry. Who's going to embrace change? Does anyone need to, to push it, or, or will contractors and developers and builders change organically? It goes to the heart of the issue as to how you transform, how you run a change program in an industry as diverse and fragmented, quite frankly, as construction. What we're going to see, I think, is certain businesses take a leadership position in terms of the more progressive businesses recognising this isn't just about a nice-to-have. This is about we have to make choices about future-proofing their own businesses, whether they're consultancy businesses like like myself, whether they're tier one contractors, whether they're specialist subcontractors. Everyone has to sort of make that decision as to where they want to be on that change curve. And when, you know, what's happened with Carillion in, in, in the last few months, that hopefully has been a wake-up call to the fact that the the commercial reality of running a, a business that's not fit for purpose will lead to failure. So I think that will that has sort of jolted a few people into action, certainly in the contracting world. I think what we also need to see is probably clients commissioning construction work, thinking actually, do you know what, we have to ask for something different. Can't keep asking for the same thing. If we ask for the same thing, we'll get the same problems. So actually some of the more progressive clients who are prepared to engage with this agenda and be a bit more innovative around what they're asking the industry to do and how they want their products and their assets created will take a lead. And it won't be all, but there'll be some that decide to go out on front. Um, and some of them will use vertically integrated models. So they will actually not just be a developer, they'll be a manufacturer and a contractor as well. And you'll already see in the beginnings of that. Um, and also there's a role for government in all of this. So a lot of what I've aimed my report at and what I've been Talking, you know, talking and influencing um, over the last 12, 18 months has been that dialogue with government to see if we can set a policy context and framework that supports the industry on that that change. And what we've seen in the last six months from a UK government policy perspective has been very encouraging. There's been some really quite major announcements in terms of uh, what happened in the last um, budget in November in terms of a move towards some five of the biggest government departments moving towards offsite manufacturing by 2019. That's pretty much unprecedented. We have a um, recognition from the likes of Homes England, who are responsible for the government's uh, land for house building release, that they can play a part in in um, pump priming change as well. So obviously the, the government response has been pretty encouraging to your paper. What's the industry response been like? It's a pretty mixed picture, and it reflects the type of scenarios that I've already outlined in terms yep. of people that are going to lead. So the more progressive businesses have seen it as a catalyst for change, and they absolutely want to get behind it. They see it as a bit of a seminal moment perhaps because all the stuff that's going on this aging workforce issue grenfell carillion they're sort of they just it all adds up to we've got to change but that's not everyone it's nowhere near everyone there's a big part of our industry that's fairly ambivalent i think what's going to help is that some of these uh innovators the one people going out on point and doing stuff and doing it differently will want when they've done things well and it is about doing things well and they prove it can be done a different way and it has a commercial benefit or some kind of broader business case benefit others will look at it and they will be influenced so i think you know it's not about have people reacted to my report and is it going to change the industry because that was never the intent it was about firstly creating a conversation and that's definitely something that's happened so you know modernize or die as a 
the, the pretext for a conversation about well, why is he saying that and do we, you know, do you believe in that as a statement is a healthy debate to be having. But ultimately, how we're going to change is going to be driven by business imperative. It's going to be driven by clients, tier ones, tier twos, consultants coming to decisions in their own boardrooms that actually this is the way we've got to go because if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. We're sat here in cast new new offices in Clerkenwell, which I must say are very smart. But the the one thing which does immediately hit you is it has a very tech feel. It's It's really clear where... Cost believe the industry is is going and the importance of technology. What what was the what was the background to branching out on your own and, and founding Cost? So I, I spent t- over twenty five years in a big business, a man and boy effectively from straight from university, and that was uh, I, I loved that. I would never, I don't look back on that with any regrets whatsoever. I was able to work in lots of different sectors all over the world um, and do lots of different things. Um, I got to a point though where I just fancied a new challenge. So back in the beginning of 2016, I established Cast with three other directors um, who I used to work with. And we, what we were trying to do is basically be a niche player. So we, I've been in big business and actually there is always going to be a place for big businesses um, to do stuff and we, the industry needs that. But I just, I felt actually there's also a space for smaller businesses, niche businesses who specialize in a, and actually stand for something. We term ourselves real estate and construction consultants, and that's quite deliberate because we span, our expertise spans understanding real estate and property, but understanding construction delivery as well. And all too often you get one or the other. You know, you don't often get both. And, you know, we want to be at that nexus point of understanding how physical delivery and construction affects the viability or affects the planning process. And we've got some excellent people in our business here. Yeah, you seem to have a lot of a lot of momentum behind you, and uh, every, every time I I visit, the numbers seem to be uh, seem to be ever increasing. So it all seems like it's going in the right direction. Yeah, we're we're fifty fifty odd people now, but I, it, we have, the fact of the matter is we have grown pretty quickly. You know, in two years to be fifty people, I think is hopefully a reflection of we've done something right. But we're not after that sort of trajectory of growth repeating. We wanted to get to a critical mass where we could do decent work, work with clients to be credible, and we're we're there now. Um, so from this point forward, it is more about consolidation. It's about careful growth. It's more about the skills and the balance of skills we need in the business. So we're thinking very carefully about who do we need now. We understand where technology is going to play a role and we're looking for um, how we use um, human judgment, skills, expertise with technology. We're not trying to fight it. We want to work with it and do good stuff for our clients, which is about market insights, about experience and expertise, about using technology in the right way. If I may just finish off with uh, with two slightly slightly random questions. What's your favourite building? One of the most interesting buildings that's, that's caught my eye over the last five years is actually the Citibank building in Manhattan, which is just south of Central Park, and the, it's quite an old building. It's not it's not necessarily that new, but it's quite interesting because the engineering that's gone into it. If you look at the building, what it's characterised by, it's a high rise building, and it has a massive cantilever at the top of the ground floor so it's a high level uh, entrance and then it's got a big overhang where most of the building doesn't appear to be supported it's like hanging in fresh right. air and i just it's what it's a bit of a random one in terms of the response but i just it struck me as being really interesting as to how they made that happen and when i first looked at it i was trying to work out the engineering that had gone into it they've cleverly concealed how they've done it as a structure looks like a normal building apart from when you see it at street level and you think how's that standing up so i'm very impressed you came up with such a such quick response i'll have to uh, add a add a link to it on the on the website uh, and my final question is 
cast aside, wh- which company really kind of interests you in the in the industry at the moment in terms of uh, innovation potential? Um, there is one particular um, business that I'm fascinated by because I, I see it as being a window on the future of our industry. I can't actually tell you who it is. <laughs> what do they do? Uh, under an NDA, but they are working in the offset manufacturing space. They are all about digital technology-led delivery. They're not only about uh, high-efficiency advanced manufacturing, they're about smart buildings. So it's uh, As a contractor or as a developer? Can't quite say what that Fair is enough. either. Okay. So I'm we'll being work. a bit coy, but what I'm trying to point to perhaps is that some interesting stuff happening. This will, you know, there, there'll be, and this is will be a business that will be joined by others, I have no doubt, that are on the vanguard of a very different um, type of off-site manufacturing that perhaps, mm. you know, everyone's theorized about but haven't hasn't seen land for real this is about to land for real and it it massively infuses me i'll get you drunk after the podcast and see if i can get (laughs) out of you um mark thank you very much it has been a pleasure and hopefully we can catch up in the future and see how things have progressed thank you pleasure there's a huge amount of things that emerge from my conversation with mark mark's clearly a real believer that the digitization of the construction industry can help solve the labor supply crisis while also improving flagging productivity levels and increasing quality. It's clear that we need to disassociate the perception of prefab from previous incarnations of the product. This time, prefab is digital, high quality, potentially open source, and increasingly linked to great design. There's further reading and resources available on the website, buildingourfuture.net. We'll be picking up on several of the themes discussed with Mark in further detail in coming episodes. If you'd like to pick up on any of the topics with Mark directly, I'd recommend heading to one of ULI's residential events, where he can often be found. 